sitting in a hearing room and it was closing arguments and it was a law firm across the table from us and they someone it was a small arbitration a small hearing room but the guy stood up to give his closing argument which is like okay what kind of like pondus do you need to (laughs) deliver in this uh, emotional closing argument and he starts talking and then he goes you know, looks at his papers and, like, looks up, very dramatic, and then he goes, I don't know about you, but I'm a Pacta Sun Servanda kind of guy. <laughs> and I was like, Wait, what? Could you contain this- your laughter? <laughs> no, no. I, I, like, put my head in my hands, and I was like, this this can't be real, but it gets better. So the, the closing argument goes and finishes, and we're just, I mean, I can't get my mind off this guy's a Pactus and Cervanda kind of guy. <laughs> and so we're cleaning out, because the, the hearing was taking place in our offices, and we were cleaning out all the papers and stuff, and uh, someone from the support staff had gathered up papers that were left behind and said, hey, Brian, do you want to take these at all? And, you know, I was rifling through them, and then there was, like, a random Post-it. And then the Post-it said, Pactus soon Cervanda kind of guy. So, <laughs> so, like, not only was this, like, a spontaneous, like, exciting thing, but it was, like, this was planned. This was, like... Oh, he had been doing it in front of the mirror yeah. before, like, <laughs> repeatedly. I'm a Pactus soon Cervanda kind of guy. And then his wife's, like, maybe you should pause between <laughs> Pacta and Cervanda. Well, also, like, as opposed to whom? Like, who, who's not a Pacta soon Cervanda kind yeah, of guy? Yeah, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's, like, where does that go? <laughs> I'm not a practicing Dominican. This is where we differ. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was too funny. I was just like, I mean, everyone has their style with their opening and closing arguments. But was this in the middle, or was it just like a, the the key point in a dramatic moment? This was the... the first thing out of his mouth for oh, the closing right. argument. This is like, let me set the stage. <laughs> let me, you know, get on everyone's level. I'm a practicing Dominican kind of guy. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, that is a good story. Uh, welcome back to the arbitration station. We are back with episode number seven. We're almost at two digits. Yeah. Not depending on how wide you glass, define glass half full. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like four more. We still haven't recorded this one. Uh, so we are back and we are going to talk about something particularly interesting today, and that is the appointment of arbitrators. And we're going to split it up, um, this one topic, into two topics. So this will be our two substantive topics today. And we're just going to talk about how to appoint an arbitrator, what to look for, what criteria. And then we're going to also get into something, um, basically the innovations that uh, institutions have come up with to kind of increase the transparency for appointing an arbitrator and also just who's sitting what on what and where. Um, and then for our happy fun time topic, we will be talking about the moot court season because the problems are being released and the kids are nervous <laughs> and we got something to say about it. So from the offices of Brian Karik in downtown Stockholm, Sweden, I'm Joel Lorkris Kullborg and let's go. Your case has started and it's time to pick an arbitrator and you are 
don't really know what to do, don't really know what to look for. So we're going to give kind of a rough and dirty version of what to think about. And a lot of this stuff is pretty intuitive, but I think a lot of people become a bit startled by the idea that I have to pick one person out of the entire world to sit on a, a case. So maybe these things will sound intuitive, but maybe these are something that you really need to think about when you're picking an arbitrator. And I would say the first one which comes up is definitely competence in the industry. What is your case about kind of getting to the theory of the case and also the subject matter of the case? So when you say industry, you mean like the the business sector and not the industry, the international arbitration industry, but rather the exact business. The exact business, I would say. Yeah. Uh, Because that really dissects the arbitration community. And I feel like arbitration practitioners in general, after 10 years or whatever, get a certain two or three industries that become they become experts in. Uh, so it's a way to kind of like dissect the market quickly. Mm. Um, and that can bring you, again, to a lot of people considering that most arbitrations are construction disputes or energy disputes and like a very broad terminology. Um, So after you get to that competence level, then I would also look at um, the nationality or the legal background of the arbitrator. Um, I'm ranking these, and I wouldn't say this is chronologically how I go through my mind, but this is something that I would think about. So, yeah, looking at the nationality and the legal background of the arbitrator can do a lot for understanding what their competence in the industry it basically fills the gaps on their competence in the industry. So if you have someone that knows about the energy sector or let's say um, the food and drink sector, they may not, they may know it within a context, a geographical context um, that may not come up in other parts of the world. So if you're saying, I know energy disputes, but okay, do you know nuclear energy or do you know wind farms or do you know nuclear energy under Japanese uh legal structure, legal framework, or do you know it under the U.S. framework? Is it oil drilling out in the ocean or is it shooting rockets from a a base in the middle of the desert, right? So you kind of have their their nationality may be able to bring that. uh, That's a good way, actually, of thinking about nationality that I hadn't considered that much because normally you you have the more, you know, the more stupid or superficial thing that I want someone who's from. Northern Europe, yeah, exactly, or has the typical, stereotypical characteristic of a person from this country and is, you know, does, yeah. doesn't like extensive uh, document production, for example, or whatever. Right, and I would say that's actually something that is very important and that you do need to think about, and I would say it's a subset of this nationality issue. But is it really, though, in this day and age, that important? Because most arbitration people, or potential arbitrators, even if they have passport X, they've worked in so many other countries, they've maybe studied in other countries, and they've been involved typically in so many arbitrations that they are, I would imagine, a little bit divorced from their own like legal background. Yeah, as far as like, do they like document production and do they not those type of decisions? You yeah. Mean? yeah, and um, I mean, anything where you could say a Swiss arbitrator would typically do this, or a U.S. arbitrator would yeah. typically do that. I, 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 I'm never convinced by that type of general statement because I agree. people are more than their nationality in that respect. That's like choosing an arbitrator because they're common law versus civil law. Like that definitely is diluted at this point and yeah. become more international. I agree with you. Um, but the language thing and also understanding how a, 
uh, culture works is definitely something that is not watered down. And I think that's true. When you're dealing with an interpreter or you're dealing with translations of documents or ad hoc translations at a hearing, it is so pivotal if one of the arbitrators, especially your party pointed arbitrator, can understand what is being translated and maybe what's not being translated um, to be able to further advocate. I mean, they're not supposed to advocate, but to kind of further understand your position. Mm. Um, So I definitely think that that is something that goes within the nationality umbrella. Um, And as I said, language. And then there's a connection. So then you have to look through the, the connection that this arbitrator, your potential party-appointed arbitrator, could have with the other arbitrators or a potential chairman. Um, and also the opposing counsel as well. If you know, and this is where it's good to be a respondent because you can kind of react to who the claimant appointed, who's their counsel. Mm, that's a good point. And then you can kind of you can kind of navigate better who your party-appointed arbitrator could be that would kind of set off the pondus of their party-appointed arbitrator yeah. or take over? Is there an, an element of strategy when you're the claimant in sort of setting the tone or the bar, depending on who you're appointing? If it's a very, very senior person, you're indicating that you expect this to be a big case and it's going to cost a lot of money and whatever. Whereas, Definitely. Okay, so that's also sort of a, a way to either show your muscle or maybe be a little bit more progressive. To intimidate. Yeah. Yeah, I, didn't, I mean, I didn't even think about that, but it definitely is kind of being like, you know, let's see who you got on your side type of thing. Yeah, exactly. Because I would write as a respondent, I would act differently if it's, you know, Gary Bourne, Jan Paulson, uh, Gabriel Kaufmann Kohler, as opposed to a 42 year old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would be like, this is not even <laughs> yeah, serious. Exactly. <laughs> I'll throw my <laughs> grandma on the tribunal. Uh, no, and it's, and it's really something you need to think about because you are a secretary. You maybe have seen a deliberation happen and how quickly a younger it's just because we're bred in this hierarchical structure that a young arbitrator will just defer to the expert in the in the field to gain favor for future arbitrations because it is a small community to just show respect but then you realize that there's an immediate imbalance between what's Mm -hmm. happening in the deliberation and you as a council need to be sure to protect that I think I agree but let me just for the fun of it disagree hypothetically Because I also think if I were a party, I would be uh, more progressive maybe and try, depending on the case, of course, to go beyond the the well-recognized names. Because I sometimes get the sense from outside of arbitrations and conferences and and peer discussions that many of these uh, semi-senior potential arbitrators, people who are junior professors, junior partners kind of persons, tend to be so much smarter than many of the senior people who are, you know, sometimes you get the impression that they've done this so many times that they've, they've stopped paying attention because they can do it right. with their left hand sleeping. But you have these super ambitious, super smart people who also came up in a different world without, you know, a housewife and a private secretary. So right. they had to figure things out by themselves. And if I were a party, I'd be more interested to appoint that type of arbitrator, like a 45-year-old on the way up rather than a 75-year-old on the peak of their career. Amen. They're ambitious. They're trying to make a name for themselves. They need to have this award be airtight. Uh, they don't want to be challenged. They want to be reappointed. Yeah. Of, and I, they are not necessarily intimidated by the 30-year-old senior person. Yeah, maybe not. And I No, I agree with you. And I think we should both be on record in this podcast that there needs to be more of a movement to appointing new, younger arbitrators uh, and kind of increasing the pool that people can choose from. 
That being said, you have a client, and the client is. That's always. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the best of worlds, but you know, someone else is paying for everything. Well, so. just imagine if you're okay. You're you have your very successful business, and you have to go to arbitration, and they say, "Well, you know the market." Okay, you don't know the market. And you say, okay, well, there's this one guy never done this before in his life, really smart. I really think he's going to do a good job. Or this guy who's done it for 30 years, and it's protecting your billions of dollars. The gut instinct for you is to choose that, of course. Yeah, I want the guy who built a summer house in Malibu with the money he made from the arbitrations he's been doing over yeah. the last decades. And but I think I think you're right in the sense that we really need that council should be a little bit more active in in advising the client and as in many ways it is their ultimate decision but to advise the client to say for example if a junior um, is doing all the work on the case and then the client's like I only want you doing opening and it's like well I I think people should stand up and be like this person knows a lot Mm -hmm. of the case Mm -hmm. and they can definitely do it and so that's kind of that counseling that you can give by appointing a new arbitrator as well that same that same argument would fly yeah for sure that ties into what we talked uh, to Annette Magnusson about, I think, with, mm-hmm. with respect to equality as well, that there's a lot of power in the hands of counsel, even though exactly. the decision ultimately resists or rests with, uh, with the party. Exactly. And so maybe another way, and this is, should be for young aspiring arbitrators, is that there are training sessions that you can do. And that could kind of be a way, if you don't have experience in an arbitration yet as an arbitrator, that you can do these training sessions, be certified at least. So, I mean, it would kind of allow you to have one more, you know, chink in your armor Mm -hmm. or whatever the saying is. Native speaker. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm I'm mixing all my what are they called? I don't even know the word. <laughs> <laughs> sayings. I'm mixing all my sayings. I'm like the grass is always harder on the other side. I'm like mm, not really that one. Uh, and then you have to finally look at their availability. And this is what we're going to get into um, in this next segment that Joel will kind of take over, which is how do you know if they're available or not? Yeah. How would you know if there might be a potential conflict or what what their caseload is like? But let me ask you, how do you know all these other things as well? How, practically speaking, do you yeah. go about as a lawyer representing someone when you're researching these people? Is it as simple as one would think that you just Google and talk to people? It, it, it actually is. I mean, <laughs> if we start from the beginning, I would say... The arbitration community is super small. You're going to know kind of the repeat players. And if you have a big case, you're going to know which ones you kind of want on the case. And then you have uh, your, you know, more senior partners who have spoken at conferences and met a lot of these people. And so they kind of have like a ticker tape running through their mind of like all the names that they could potentially use. Um, So unfortunately, and fortunately for some, is that the arbitration community is so small that it kind of becomes a... Who do I think would be good for this yeah, that I've met yeah. and know? Um, and then you that's where networking and being at conferences like we talked about. Yeah, but that's something that I've been thinking so much about. And it would be interesting to hear your experience because you've been inside arbitrations much more than I have. Because I think that I personally have a pretty good uh, view of who would be a good arbitrator for case X, Y, or Z. Because yeah. I, I think that I know of people and I also have a personal impression of people that I've met and that I've talked to. But how much bearing do you think you, it really has? How important or rather, uh, how relevant is it? How you act the way you are and at conferences and networking sessions 
as opposed to what's going on when you're on a tribunal with inside of you know uh, pretty heated discussions that yeah. come up because I, I i i'm not even sure that you know i i don't think i know this as good as i as well as i think i do because no. i have a, a, a an impression based on non arbitration related right uh, well i mean speaking at conferences is like a commercial because i'm all arbitrations are private no one's going to know how these people operate how they talk how they act in a legal setting, how convincing they are when they give a presentation or whatever. Um, and so when you see that and then you say, okay, I've never seen him before, I now, him or her, I, I now see them in front of me and it's very impressive, their competence, their ability to communicate, their, you know, their, uh, their charm. I, I mean, the, all that stuff factors in and then you say, okay, this is like a mini commercial for this person. Mm -hmm. And then you say, okay, I need like a Greek arbitrator. Oh, I remember at this conference, this guy was very yeah. impressive or this girl was very impressive. But what I'm getting at is that it's very easy if you're a charming uh, guy or girl to get that impression and or give that impression to people. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you would be a good decision maker or a good Definitely case not. manager or other characteristics that you need in a good arbitrator. Definitely not. And that's why the hardest part is getting your first one. Yeah. Um, and not screwing up. And not. Yeah. And <laughs> once you have it. Exactly. Work like making sure it's the best that you can do. Um, but you're right. So after you kind of go through the your Rolodex, um, then you kind of start looking at CVs and you start... Pause. It's just mm -hmm. maybe the third time you've used the phrase Rolodex. You mean that not in the literal sense, right? You mean it in like a metaphorical Rolodex. Some people Rolodex. still have Rolodexes. <laughs> but you don't. I don't. I don't. I have a mental Rolodex. <laughs> uh, and my mind goes... Uh, yeah, but now everything's it's online. and LinkedIn. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but you kind of like look through CVs and, you know, a lot of people have it online and a lot of people have all their publications and books and articles. And you kind of like go through the subject matter of your case, the background of your case. And then you kind of link, OK, this person has written on it. This person has been counsel in these type of arbitrations. So you kind of start making all the connections you can to say, OK, this person has the most connections to this type of case. Um, and then you kind of make a little list of the people, I would say like five or six, because you're going to have a lot of conflicts. Um, and then you kind of take that and you start discussing it with your client and who they think and who they feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And um, But if you're talking about the nitty gritty, how do you find a person? It's not a rocket science type of type of situation. You kind of have to go through the usual media, which is, you know, your Googles and your books and your articles and your blogs. And then you kind of see which ones are the repeat players that make sense. Yeah. Um, I I remember someone that I had recommended for another team in my firm was someone who I had met pr like prior in a casual setting. And I was very impressed by how they conducted themselves at meetings and stuff like that. And then they needed someone with that particular legal background. And mm. they were mm. also interested in proposing a woman on their list of suggestions to the count to the client. And it was a perfect fit. And they ended up appointing that person. Um, so it wasn't uh, a huge, you know, scientific yeah. mathematical equation. Which, that, once again, that goes to show that it's important to be nice to people. Yeah. Because that's how you get that type of appointments, at least initially, usually. Yeah. That you're top of mind for someone who met you and liked you and thought you made a good impression. Of course. 
Uh, and then, so then now you've kind of picked your party appointed arbitrator, the other side has picked theirs, and now you have um, the election of the chairman. Yeah, and that's interesting, because that's what I was going to ask you, if, there, mm-hmm. if the considerations are different when it comes to... The chairman. Yeah. If I, you're involved in doing that, because that's not super common, I guess, that you're... No, and that's kind of the lens through which we will be focusing this part of the podcast, which is kind of the party autonomy in choosing the chairman, because according, depending on the rules that you're operating under, parties can have the ability to have an influence on the election of the chairman. It also can be included in your contracts to say, you know, the third, this will be a tribunal of three, each party will appoint their own arbitrator, and the third will be appointed as a joint agreement of the parties. If no agreement is reached, it goes to this institution or appointing authority. Um, and if you are involved in the drafting of these contracts, it could be a very useful thing to advocate to or advise to your client to include because it just gives them more of an ability to not influence the arbitration, but to have an effect on who is appointed. Yeah, autonomy. Yeah. More autonomy. Which is great for your client, and they're going to feel way more involved in the process instead of just feeling like they have to react to all of these decisions. Um, so I think it is a great thing to do. And so what parties can do is they can agree to a short list. So, um, and this can be done after the dispute has arose. But you say, let's you call the opposing counsel and say, do you, would you like to do this process where we agree on a list of five, and then we present it to the institution. Or each party presents their own list, and then you can kind of reject the others and see yeah. if there's any commonalities, yeah. which has happened. And it's just... Yeah, I've heard many of those stories where each party presents a list of 10 people, and then they just cross-reference, and one's left. Yeah, and after conflicts and all that stuff. And then, so it could be... And then if no agreement is reached, you can all, like inevitably leave it to the institution. But if you have that step right before that kind of gives you a little bit of say in what's going to happen... Um, I think that's great. Now, how, what do you choose or what do you look at when you look to a chairman versus the party appointed arbitrator? You kind of need that like balancing act and like supervisory authority. Um, Someone who can really take care of a case. Someone can make the case move forward. Someone who can handle both of these arbitrators uh, well that won't just be like railroaded uh, by one of them. So I think it gets a little bit more into the dynamics between the tribunal and you kind of have to have someone with expertise that is kind of a step above or someone at least matching the party appointed arbitrators because you don't want your chair being a puppet uh, for one of the party appointed arbitrators. For sure. Because that, uh, that could happen. That, on, on that note, do you have any experience of uh, being in the position that it's not the parties or the institution that appoints the chairperson but the co-arbitrators? I have not been involved in that. Because I see that from time to time, and I I don't know if that's preferable, but I, th- I think that makes sense, given what you just said, that if it needs to be someone who has the respect of both the co-arbitrators and can also act as a sort of a presiding figure, uh, both literally and uh, and figuratively. But if, if the co-arbitrators actually have uh, the ultimate influence on who that person is, that seems like then that's a given because they will only appoint someone that they both respect right. and would like to work with, basically. It builds camaraderie from the get-go between yeah, exactly. the two co-arbitrators. I have not been involved in that, but I wonder how. I wonder if the inner circle argument would just get completely exploited when you have two 
arbitrators choosing the third arbitrator. It depends on who those arbitrators are, I guess. Right. Because the parties still have the authority or the autonomy to appoint their own arbitrators. And you you could guess, probably, depending on who you're appointing, mm-hmm. who that person would like to see as the chairperson. So that you might be more progressively inclined co-arbitrators and less progressively inclined co-arbitrators. Definitely. So, so you can indirectly, you can still influence it as a party. But of course, that's a valid point because then you have this club of people who like each other. Yeah. And then you may not get someone that you really want on there. But uh, I think that choosing the, an arbitrator is something that is done so early on in the case that you don't really know how the case is going to form or how it's going to progress. And cases evolve and change and morph and and turn into monsters and you don't know who you really want deciding your case at that very early stage. So it really behooves everyone to kind of get into the nitty gritty as much as they can into the case. What about if, um, you know, procedural objections arise or what kind of applicable law are we working with? What's the procedural law that we're working with? What can they bring to the arbitration from their background that could help your case and help present your case or protect your client from being heard in the case. Yeah, um, It's really an exercise. And unfortunately, it kind of starts from a junior person kind of doing the research and then it filters up. Um, so if, for our like more junior listeners, it would be very appreciated by your seniors if you kind of like do the digging early and kind of really have this be a, you know, it's like a vetting process, a yeah. true vetting process. And we should say, which we will also return to in a later, later episode of, the, of this podcast, that this is a pretty interesting and large part of what you're doing at the institution. It's not just juniors right. at law firms, because right. it's also at institutions a pretty significant part of, of the task, especially with chairperson. There's a lot of research yeah. to be done. And so that same logic applies in that context as well. Exactly. Exactly. It's pretty important. All right. Well, let's uh, move on to the innovations we've been noticing. So the innovations we've been noticing, Brian, is really uh, true to your American self. You're overselling the segment. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pick up a little bit on one of the things that you talked about, which is the availability of the arbitrators. Because I've been amazed by how busy the more like the upper echelon of the arbitrating sphere is because there are that sort of comes into the discussion we had. Maybe that was the first episode about the arbitral secretaries yeah. writing parts of the award. If you have 10 big cases, you're maybe, as a party, you sort of lost your expectation that that arbitrator is going to be super involved in the case. Right. And then I all think. that due diligence you did is worthless. Right? Yeah, exactly. So availability is a, is a very big part. And yet again, a good argument as to why the, the more junior arbitrators might be a, a good pick because they t- generally tend to be more interested in the few cases that they have. So how do you know if uh, arbitrator X is available? Well, as you talked about, you ask that person. Right. Typically, I guess. And then you get a form in return? You have, well, you have like a very limited, and some people can differ on how much you can contact the arbitrator, but you can have a limited interaction being like, what is your availability at this time and the next three years? Yeah. But if, if you don't ask that person, uh, at least historically, it's been hard to know about arbitrations that are pending and which arbitrators are involved. And 
that I think is the reason that some institutions now have started to actually publish easily available uh, statistics on pending cases and who is on the, those cases. And as far as I can gather, it's the, the VIAC Center in Vienna, the ICC, and the CAM in Milan. Those are the three that I know of that do this as of you know just a f- few months back. I think the ICC started in 2016. And ICSID, does it? Of course. Good point. <laughs> then, and ha- have been doing so since right. forever. ICSID is always sort of a special case. But that's, maybe that's also part of the influence, I think, because they've been, in terms of transparency, you can say a lot of things about ICSID, but they've always been one step ahead of most of the commercial institutions when it comes to transparency. Definitely. So that's a pretty good way to look at it. The problem, though, of course, is that you have ICSID and three other institutions that won't give you uh, the whole picture of, of potential arbitrators, but at least you can get an insight. And it's been really, it's been broadcast, of course, by these institutions as uh, a very important transparency step now. And the ICC thing, because ICC is so big, and has so many cases, they have on their webpage, which I recommend our listeners to, to go and, and, and explore, you, can, you, you cannot really search in the ideal way you would like to, but you can sort the cases on nationality and some other factors, and you can actually see pretty easily who's on pending ICC cases. So sort arbitrators that are sitting on cases based off their nationality. Yeah. Okay. Otherwise, you have to go through, scroll through all the cases. So the the way it works, I haven't actually looked at it uh, on the the Milan webpage, but I looked at the Vienna page, and I've been going through the ICC page for uh, before many times because I think it's interesting. The way it works on those two is that they assign each case with an identification number. That's not the same as the case administration number that they have internally, but they just give it, you know, case number one, so that you can identify the cases and also the three different arbitrators are connected to the same case. Right. And then they just add cases and who's who's the arbitrator or the arbitrators who they appoint, who appointed them. Mm-hmm. So the parties or the institutions or their co-arbitrators. And that's pretty much it. So what do you think? Is this the the new game-changing transparency? I was just going to ask you, uh, I was just going to ask you why, what any downside would be of this because all I see is an upside. You see how busy an arbitrator is. You see who they're sitting with. But, right, you can yeah, see. Yeah, that's a very good point. So that's a really interesting fact, and see if they have a past relationship with any of the arbitrators, or you know, especially if you're deciding on a short list for your chairman, you're like they sit a lot together, which could be to our advantage or disadvantage. Um, and has the arbitrator worked a lot under those rules? Like, do they have experience under these rules? We should really, I should have really looked at the exit statistics because they they compiled this pretty uh, pretty well in an easily accessible form. And I know there's this very good uh, research center in Oslo, the Pluricourts. They do a lot of empirical work with arbitration research. Very, very, very good. They were the ones. I think we talked about the, the double hatting. They did an, an index for all, for which arbitrators are most frequently acting as both counsel and arbitrators. We should have them on, actually, now that I say this out loud. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting article. But they've also looked at, you know, who's, who's the most frequently appointed arbitrator. The problem, though, and this comes back to the topic of this segment, is that you, you can only base that on publicly available information. 
and we don't really know how many cases are out there that exactly. are not disclosed. So what they're doing is investment treaty cases, this particular research, because that's so much easier because you have, at least in the exit context, you have available data. Mm-hmm. But you still always have to guess. And I, th- I know that Luke Peterson on I Reporter would like me to point out that the amount of unknown treaty-based cases is way higher than people tend to assume. You'll get this UNCTAD statistics, the organization yeah. uh, that works with uh, trade and development and investment for the UN. And they always say, of course, uh, when they publish it, that this is just the publicly known cases. But then you have a lot of discussion based on that data, but you're not really sure how accurate it is because you can't just tell how many cases there are that we don't know about. Not and, at all. And, yeah, and they are... Uh, well, experience shows that there are way more than we know about. So do you think any backlash of this would be that arbitrators don't want you to know how busy they are? Maybe. That's the only potential like, con I can think of, because otherwise, generally, 9 out of 10 arbitrators, of course, would like this to be advertised. I mean, if they could, they would go around themselves telling the world all the good cases they're working on, but right. they cannot because they're usually restrained by confidentiality concerns. So I think most arbitrators would want their experience to be broadcast as widely as possible. But maybe, yeah, you might be right. There might be, but I once again, I don't think those people are that many, right? Yeah. I think one of the downsides could be a conflicts problem where people kind of use this to say they don't really know how small the arbitration community is or they do know, but they want to just like exploit the fact that it's so small. So they'll try and conflict out a lot of arbitrators that they don't want by saying, oh, they're sitting with this person like 10 times uh, and then they shouldn't be, you know, they should be conflict out of this case. Um, That is actually something that I see as a real problem. I mean, especially if you're talking about like in Stockholm where counsel and arbitrators are like, you know, one day they're counsel for the arbitrator and the next day the arbitrator's counsel for that counsel who's now arbitrator. That's true. But that's, it isn't, I don't think you, you should blame that on the available data. That's just what you do with the data and ultimately what the the institution or the, or the tribunal hearing the challenge does with it. So right. the availability of data in and of itself is a good thing. And then if you use it in like a bad faith effort to to get someone off a case, that's a different discussion. That's right. not really something you should blame on the institutions no, publishing the No, but if the you look at the IBA guidelines, I mean, the, the letter of those guidelines on those conflicts, it's pretty easy to be in like an orange list territory yeah. if you're sitting on, this, on 10 cases with the arbitrator that you're now sitting as counsel in front of. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. But, I mean, it's the better scenario then that you don't know about those 10 cases. Uh, no. So that you cannot raise an objection. No. I mean, it's, it's better to you're have right. the information, of course. No, you're right. I think I'm trying to think because usually when you think of these like great new innovations, it's usually the people who are sitting as arbitrator who always object to them. <laughs> uh, so I'm trying to think what their objection would be. And I think it would be a conflicts objection. Yeah. Uh, there was an article I read uh, on Kluver where uh, one of our listeners, actually, um, who is in Lisbon, um, he was interviewed talking about um, innovative new criteria for the appointment of arbitrators for the Arbitration Institute in uh, Lisbon. <clears throat> and they basically have the similar problem that they do in Stockholm, where everybody kind of knows each other. Uh, so these like IBA rules cannot really be used in the same sense. So I think um, even if people are worried about conflicts arising and IBA guidelines being invoked left and right, 
that a lot of people understand the community and the industry and wouldn't really maybe take that very seriously. Okay, so uh, guys, you should go out there, look at these lists. Uh, the ICC, I know, is a searchable database. The Vienna, I think they just publish a PDF regularly with updated information. The Milan Chamber, once again, I don't really know about, but I can really recommend looking at the ICC just to get a good inside view of what is the typical uh, arbitrator situation, who's being appointed and by whom. Yeah, and this is also a call to other institutions to kind of follow suit, right? Amen. Amen. And now we are back with the happy fun time topic. I know we what the jingle could be. It's like opening a beer. I was, Jesus, like one mind. I was going to say, you have some beer, don't you? Yes. Yeah, but let's try it. Oh, seriously, open. If, if, are they cold? No, they're downstairs. Oh, uh, okay. Should I get it? Yeah, please. <laughs> this is our happy fun time jingle. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> And this, dear listeners, is no joke, actual beer drinking. <laughs> Cheers. We, it's happy fun time topic, and it's a Saturday, so we deserve it. Yes, we do. We made it through to the end, and now we're going to talk about mooting, the moot court process, how it all works, and why people do it. Yes, but let me first, I, I outed you a very minor aspect, a minor blind spot in your uh, arbitration resume a few episodes back when I said you were not on the Ojimid email list. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Sorry for that. But let me pay you back by saying that I have a bigger blind spot because I have never participated in a moot court exercise ever, which is not unheard of, but very unusual in our generation of arbitration people. I've never, you know, not even in a fake setting pled a case or argued before a tribunal. <laughs> do you have a desire to do it? I mean, it's, it's too late. I'm retiring, you know, in five years. <laughs> Joel, I'll make a moot for you if you want. <laughs> I have, though, coached teams and been a moot arbitrator, but I've and never yeah, done the actual thing. It's so much easier when you're not actually doing it. Yeah, but it's also not really serious if you haven't done it yourself no. prior to being an arbitrator or a coach. Then you don't also have the bad habits of what everyone brings with their, you know, well, when I mooted, and then that's like how they judge other moodies, which is the name that you give to people that do it. Jesus. Uh, yeah, that's for real. <laughs> uh, so the, the mood problems come out usually around this time. And the, the ones that are kind of the most w- well known, but there are so many more that are equal in caliber. Um, is the William C. Viss or Willem C. Viss moot in Vienna. And then there's also one in Hong Kong. They just expanded, uh, which are about like a week, two weeks consecutively. And the Viss moot, maybe, plural, mm-hmm. really the big, uh, the moot, the biggest thing. The, yeah. Maybe even the original. Yeah. Uh, to make it on an international scale and to like have it be this all-star recruitment spectacle. Um, and then you have the Frankfurt investment moot, which takes place in Frankfurt. And uh, it is at the Goat University. And those is around the same time, usually a little bit earlier than the VIS moot. But then there's a bunch of others. There's a bunch of other moot. There's like a WTO moot. 
Um, there is there's some domestic Swedish moots. There's there are two more international arbitration moots actually. Oh, talk to me. One is the FDI moot, which oh, is right. also investment related, and I I th- I don't even know if it's that much smaller in terms of participation than the Frankfurt investment moot. So it's another investment treaty arbitration moot that I have no uh, first-hand experience with. And uh, it, we have the Jessup moot, which is technically right. a public international law. So I think usually they they argue a case before uh, the ICJ. So not really arbitration, but sort of, because it's interstate and yeah. it's public international law. That was popular in the United States. Actually. Yes, I know. And yeah. I think the FDI moot is also yeah. more popular, maybe even more so than the Frankfurt in the U.S., because I think it's in it is. Boston, maybe. I don't know. No. Uh, but the... So the Frankfurt moot is... Or the... No. the Yeah, the Frankfurt moot is what I competed in when I was in law school at American University. And we didn't have a team. And we didn't plan on sending a team. We didn't have a coach. But I happened to be involved in the student association, which had access to funding. and But that's not how I got involved. I got involved because I gave a presentation in my legal writing class, and this very charismatic, wonderful girl, woman named Willa Obel uh, came up to me in the library and in her hushed voice says, do you want to do an arbitration moot? And I was like, I don't know what that is, but sure. And then I got involved in investment Plus, arbitration. I don't know what arbitration is or I don't know what a moot is. Yeah, I didn't know it's anything. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know anything. I was like, but sign me up because I love So this is Brian Kotick, the origin story. This is the origin story. Ah, yeah. I didn't know that. You didn't know this? Nope. So Willa Obel, I have to. So it was actually people that were in our moot court organization in at the university. And there was three of them. And they so they were already involved in the VIS moot. And then they heard about this other moot that was a fledgling moot and they wanted to get involved. And so I was the only one that had no mooting experience. Um, And then I came in and we just trailblazed with no coach and no idea. So this is also a call to people who if you're part of a university that is not involved in these moots, you can very well do it. All you got to do is sign up. And find the funding to get your booties over to Frankfurt. And the funding, in my experience, and also based on what other people uh, have been experiencing, is pretty easy to get. Because it's a, I mean, it's not easy, but it's an easy sell uh, for law firms, especially to say like, yeah. hey, we're four or five ambitious people. We want to, you know, go somewhere and do this really serious thing that's also fun and that will expose your firm to, you know, X hundreds of other students yeah. and, and lawyers. We'll put you on our business cards we pass out to everyone. You'll be on our name placards when we plead. Uh, our folders with all our documents will have your logo on it. That's like how you kind of this, pitch it. Okay, this, because it comes naturally, I have to ask you this. It's a, it's a tiny detail what you just brought up. But in your experience, because I'm guessing since you're just an American, you like that shit, right? When people show up with their business cards and they have practiced a handshake with all the arbitrators. I in teach the, the handshake, Joel. Oh, yeah. Okay, of course you do. <laughs> this is what I... And this is... Listen, and I'm also selling as a side business. I'm selling moot consulting. Uh, both pleading and also just like... If you've seen the movie Bring It On where there's like a choreographer that goes up and down the coast, yeah. that's what I want to do. Oh, yeah, good. Because you won the whole shebang, right? When I coached, I won. Oh, that's right. I won. Uh, Even better. Through Stockholm University. And you're a winning coach. Yeah, it was so it was so baller because they were in the final round and my flight was leaving. And so they were in the middle of the final round and I just like walked out of the back doors being like, take it from here. <laughs> it was very dramatic. <laughs> uh, but it was, no, so 
I yeah, and so I teach a very certain style when I teach people how to moot. But basically, what I tell them when I first meet them is. The unfortunate reality of a moot is that it's not about your best arguments winning, and it's not about winning. It's about looking good for 30 minutes straight without offending anyone. And unfortunately, when you boil it down to that like very basis, that's talking about like your accent, the way you deliver, the way you use case law, the way you refer to opposing counsel, the way you answer questions— all of that contributes to what I'm saying. Yeah. So although it sounds superficial, there's actually a lot of technique. Of course, yeah, I agree with you. I just think that the, that particular aspect of it is is not super relevant. But that's... No, I, I agree with you. But to win, which is, and the girl who was on the team, Dominica, she won Best Bleeder as well. And yeah, got it a seems free to work. LLM. So I, I mean, I guess you were obviously a few steps ahead of me in this game. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, when I've been an arbitrator for a few years, I've uh, and it's really an arbitrator within quotation marks, of course. Right. I I agree with all the other things you just said when it comes to the presentation and the way essentially you sell what you're saying. Right. But this, you know, walking into a room and shaking the hands of all the arbitrators, showing your made-up business card. <laughs> I don't know. You it, don't it, buy it. It just feels fake. And it, just like sit down it, and do your thing because right. that's what I'm going to be looking at and not this. Because, I mean, in an actual arbitration, that no way in hell would you just walk into the room and shake everyone's hands, exchange business cards and say, hello, I'm representing blah, blah, blah. No, uh, you definitely wouldn't do it to the arbitrators, but you do it to opposing counsel and there's yeah. like a, a level of collegiality that you develop before the arbitration even starts. Of course, but, but that's the point because it's assumed that you know at least of each other well enough. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, the mooting setting is, of course, not the exact same thing as right. the real deal. It's different. Right. Uh, so the difference between the moots, uh, between the two, let's just use FIAM and VIS as like the two moots. Um, I would say the FIAM is an easier one to get started with, but it's a harder problem. So the reason why it's easier to get started with is that there's no written submissions. It's all oral submissions. So there's no like the VIS where you have claimant's memo, respondent's memo. So you, there's like checkpoints that you need to prepare for. The FIAM, you just show up and you do the oral arguments, which is how me and my little gang of... Uh, ragtag kids were were able to compete. Um, at, and but, also, to be fair, not to, to skip too far ahead, but I, I would imagine that the fact that you were American and maybe already had some like experience of arguing and pleading and, of course, were native speakers that maybe gave you, I don't want to you know, rain on your parade, but maybe you got a little bit ahead already because of your background. Right. Yes. Because in my experience, you can really tell who who's doing this for the first time and who has already been you know Seasoned. exposed yeah, exactly and and done similar things in their like previous legal training definitely and that's it's an again an unfortunate consequence of the format uh, that you can kind of, if you have your style points and you're able to kind of like engage in the tribunal and kind of hit your hot points and then get out without getting busted on anything, you win more than someone who has really like delved into the process and delved into the facts a bit more. Um, and so that's the difference also with the, the, the Frankfurt moot is based on real life events. So based on history. And so the ability for you to kind of like get creative with your arguments is exponentially greater because you can really go into the historical facts of it. Whereas the this is all made up and you're in this bubble. And so your ability to argue is completely restrained because you can only argue on this fake, this fake universe. Uh, yeah, and so in, and I say that because if you're competing in the vis, it's even more so that you can't do anything else with your substance. So you got to do all the handshaking to kind of win points, oh, that's right? True. Yeah, yeah. 
so that's kind of with the vis. I even I even push it even more. Uh, whereas the Frankfurt, I'm like, you guys should really get into the history and like yeah, exactly read read up on the Roman Empire or right. like uh, naval accidents in the 18th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Exactly. Um, so when these and so why do people? So now you're okay. Am I going to do it or am I not going to do it for the people that are students that are listening? Um, and I would have if you can do it, you have to do it uh, because it is just exposure that you're never going to get anywhere else. And it's kind of this international, it's almost like a European saying, like, I have a 1A in Spanish. Like, it's a level of that you can kind of, like, shop around, right? Um, I think it is um, an important thing to do. It it builds your skills. It builds your skills in arbitration. It is completely weird universe, but you are able to plead in front of a tribunal and do which you're not going to be able to do for five years at a firm, so you might as well do it now. Um, here, here, if we... If we don't say anything else, or before we get six more beers, we we should really just say do it. Yeah. By way of general advice to potential moodies. Yeah, because people get crazy with this stuff. <laughs> crazy people go back to Vienna years after year. It's like people yeah. going to camp, yeah. you know. And then when you're done with the moot, then you're part of this little society, and then you go back and be an arbitrator in Vienna or Frankfurt, and then it's even more networking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in that in that sense, and you know, to be completely transparent on this podcast, you know, my uh, my moving to Stockholm was based off a of moot, and my job had something to do with the moot because I did one of our practice rounds in front of my you know current employer. So it, it happens. Yeah, and it does. And I mean, generally speaking, many of the best student in you know each and every class, they're the ones who do this. So you sort of already at that stage by just showing up and, and working really hard on this, you've already made yourself a mark a little bit. And, right. and st- you're standing out compared to maybe your peers when you're competing for a job or whatever, meeting a person. That exactly. And you're doing it in English. Yes. So for a lot of people, this is a True. big a big process for language. And it's something that you can say, you know, I went through this entire process and pled a moot in English. Like you can tell that I have a level of English that... Uh, could point. be helpful. Good point. It's also the pre-moots that we shouldn't yeah. forget because we've we've been hosting you and I pre-moot here in Sweden and for the Frankfurt moot, and that's also part of the the circuit. It's not not just the main event. Generally, you do one or two pre-moots in other cities as well if you're able financially to to get there. Yeah. So you're really you know you get to know the other teams a little bit, and you make friends. Basically. I still talk to a lot of people that yeah. I met during the mooting process. Someone that I arbitrated against is now dating someone who I coached in the Frankfurt thing two years later. So, yeah. it's I mean, the world is really, really small, and it makes it even smaller. And guess what? If they're looking for an American arbitrator, maybe I'll make the shortlist. <laughs> no, but it's 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 all part of this game, and it's a very, very good introduction to the, the industry, I think, um, even though it is a microcosm and it has no... I mean, you're working on a case for a year and it's the only case you're working on, which would never happen in real life. Um, but people take it really seriously. Yeah, for sure. Also to the fellow nerds out there, it's fun just to read the problems, even if you're not oh, participating. Yeah. Even, oh, yeah. Especially the Frankfurt. We should really give a shout out to Sabine Konrad, who's the driving, powering engine behind the, the, the Frankfurt mood, because those problems in particular are just enjoyable to read because there's so much work being yeah. invested in, in coming up with a good problem, which, as you say, 
is based loosely on historical events, but then made into like, current investment arbitration problems. As a um, as a practitioner, it's also it's also great to brush up on your skills. It's like continuing legal education, basically getting yeah. through these points. Uh-huh. Doing the research, hearing about the research, hearing other people's views on how to attack an issue. I mean, you can humble yourself and think that students might have something to say as well. Uh, so I, I enjoy the process. And when the problem comes out, I'm excited to see everyone, you know, all the universities band behind their teams. And there is an imbalance with the resources that are given to these students. And so you really have to give it up to these students that have no resources, no books, no access to online technology, online uh, publications or Kluver or anything like that. And, and are not really part maybe of an arbitration uh, environment. They don't have practitioners or professors in their proximity that can help them out. Exactly. As well as if you're in Geneva or New York. Yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna miss it this year. Well, maybe we'll do the pre-mood again. Yeah, I haven't even thought about that. You know, I've been in a cabin for six weeks working on my dissertation. That's right. Maybe we should actually try to get that rolling. You guys should see Joel right now with his uh, <laughs> cabin look. He's doing great. Uh, well, that's all for us then. I think we have some thank yous that we want to throw out. Of course, we have the young arbitrators of Sweden who have been very supportive buying these microphones, but also sending out a blast email on our behalf, uh, which was very nice. Thank um, you. Thank you. And we have, and honestly, we're having a call for people that have topics that they want to hear on the show, people who want to be a part of this in any way. Um, during this uh, first season of the podcast, we are open and looking to see what's out there. Yes, the arbitration station at gmail.com and uh, at the arb station on Twitter and you guys should be on Twitter if you're not. I know it's maybe not what you think that most arbitration people would be interested in. But there's actually a pretty interesting community of arbitration people on Twitter with a lot of interactions that you don't otherwise see. So I recommend it even if you're generally skeptical towards that type of social media thing. And Joel is active. So if you tweet at us, Joel will be... I get a lot of information tweeting you back. From, from Twitter more than you would suspect. Yeah. Uh, and then the arbitrationstation.com, and then you can also download us on iTunes or SoundCloud. Correct. Uh, and hopefully, oh, and Android, of course, you can go through SoundCloud. Cheers. Cheers, and Episode goodbye. Seven.